Welcome back to the Health Longevity Secret Show with Dr. Robert Lufkin. One out of four people have a disease globally, which is now the leading cause for liver transplants and is driven by our dietary choices. Today, we are joined by Dr. Mikkel Forsgren, lead scientist at AMRA Medical, who will discuss his work using magnetic resonance imaging for body composition to better understand this disease. Mikkel received his PhD at Linkoping University's Center for Medical Image Science and Visualization. Before we begin, I would like to mention that this show is separate from my teaching and research roles at the medical school with which I am currently associated. It is part of my continuing effort to bring quality, evidence-based information about health and longevity to the general public. Now, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Mikkel Forsgren. Hi, Miko. Welcome to the show. Hi, Robert. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Uh, today, we get to take a dive into the use of magnetic resonance imaging to do body composition analysis, as well as looking at things like liver fat, and then also understand some of the diseases that this is uh, technology is being applied to and also how we can use it to manage our own health and wellness in the lifestyle choices we take. But before we do that, let's take a moment, Mikkel, and tell us uh, a little bit about how you came to be uh, so interested in this fascinating area. So I guess it started all more than 10 years ago when one of the founders of the company I work for now grabbed me as part of a bachelor project and threw me in front of MRI scanner and asked me to assess and fix some issue they had with assessing the liver. And then I continued on that technology side of MRI and started exploring and working on a bunch of different MR-based methods trying to replace a liver biopsy. And eventually I started to get to read more and more about the clinical aspects of all of these things and working together with positions uh, on these various research projects. I'm now almost fully transitioning into the clinical applications rather than focusing on the technology side. So now I'm just trying to apply these uh, skills that I have in MRI and trying to solve real world problems. Great, great. Well, um, let's take a moment and talk about some of the diseases that that before we talk about the technology, let's talk about the diseases and see which diseases this technology can address. In particular, there is a disease that's an epidemic that's sweeping the world. Uh, it has a prevalence about, of about 25% and maybe even higher. And, and I'm not talking about COVID, actually. I'm talking to something that... Uh, that may be even more significant in the long term. Uh, and it's largely attributable to the epidemics of obesity and metabolic syndrome. And, and in the United States, uh, this disease has uh, become the number one cause for liver transplants in, in uh, some situations. So maybe you could uh, speak to this and tell us a little bit about, about this disease. Yeah, so the 
disease that probably not that many people have heard of is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or fatty liver disease for short for some people. So it's a uh, tightly connected with obesity and as obesity is increasing, the prevalence uh, of fatty liver disease also increases. Uh, so it's tightly associated with metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So actually, if you have fat, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, you're more likely to have diabetes or type 2 diabetes, if you want to be more precise. And vice versa, if you have type 2 diabetes, you're more likely to develop fatty liver disease. Let me take and, a moment and, and amplify that just a second. This disease is called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And that's sort of a, a strange name, uh, having alcohol in there. But I remember when I went to medical school and, and practicing up until about 1980, the main cause of fatty liver disease was alcoholism and drinking, drinking alcohol. And then in the 1980s, with the introduction of high fructose corn syrup, we began to see something different, which was a non-alcoholic version of that. So, I, And that's what we're, we're talking about now. And this non-alcoholic version of fatty liver disease has surpassed the alcoholic version and has now become by far the most common cause of fatty liver disease. Great. Yeah, exactly. And it's also expected to be a leading cause for uh, liver transplantation. It's not there yet, but since the the disease is increasing and thankfully we've been managed to cure hepatitis C. Uh, it's uh, probably to be one of the most uh, prominent causes of liver transplant in the future. Luckily, it's a fairly slowly progressing disease and uh, not everyone will progress to the end stages, uh, but uh, yeah, it's on, on range of 20 to 30%. So it's a huge number of uh, people who actually are suffering from it or have it. And, and what, um, this is a deposition of fat in the liver. Is that right? Why it's called fatty liver disease. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, typically defined by having excessive amounts of fat in the liver. And uh, that's sort of usually seen as a benign uh, phase. And then you go into something called NASH, which is the hepatitis. So you have an ongoing inflammation also within the liver coupled with cell death and scar tissue formation. And that's sort of the more uh, damaging phase of the disease, which can eventually progress further into something called cirrhosis, where you have excessive amounts of scar tissue throughout the liver. And eventually you would need a liver transplant uh, to cure that because the liver is more or less uh, replaced by scar tissue to a very, very large extent at that point. So, so how is um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease um, linked to obesity or metabolic syndrome? What is the relationship to that? So it all connects to, I mean, it's probably the same, uh, different uh, manifestations of the disease in different organs. So I think it's challenging just to focus on the liver. You need to look and have a holistic view and see the entire body as I mean, the, the liver drives metabolism to a large extent throughout the body. So the body is affected to a large extent by the liver. And then you also have a crosstalk between the muscles and the liver. Uh, and that crosstalk itself is also further influenced by obesity, inactivity and excessive amounts of fat. So there's a lot of different players in the body that interacts to 
uh, sort of uh, influence this disease and its progression. And there's still a large large number of unknowns in how this disease progresses and how to cure. So it's a huge uh, amount of effort going into finding cures and treatments for this disease. Yeah, and there's certainly uh, genetic components and and environmental components. Uh, is this similar to um, the foie gras that uh, when animals are induced to have very fatty livers for for uh, as as a uh, something to consume? Uh, is, is that is that a similar type of phenomena, or is that a different mechanism? That's uh, a good question. Uh... I think my gut feeling would be yes, that's uh, similar, that you have an excessive amount of food intake and very, very little, little activity. So you have too much energy going in, and the liver is very good at storing energy. That's what it's doing in the short term. So uh, I think it's a good, uh, good yeah, analogy. I, I've heard, yeah, I've heard people, if you want to make foie gras, you feed the, the duck or the goose uh, basically a corn slurry, and that's been known for for. For hundreds of years and the corn slurry of course is high in fructose which is what the liver converts to fat and uh not surprisingly high fructose corn syrup has uh begun to dominate our diet since the 1980s when non-alcoholic fatter liver disease suddenly appeared on the scene so many people suspect a link there but like you say it's complicated in the etiology and and risk factors are are still being worked worked out on this. Um, how does you mentioned the fatty liver disease? Uh, also, the manifestation of the overall metabolic syndrome involves other parts of the body, such as overall total body composition, and and um, we hear the term sarcopenia. What is that? So, if we start in the more earliest stage of disease, we have. Uh, done some research that was published some time ago uh, on general population. We looked at people with uh, high f- levels of liver fat and low alcohol consumption, so a definition of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And we could see that by looking into the skewness in body composition, say that if they have high amounts of abdominal fat, that is visceral fat or the bad fat, if you will, that's sort of within all your intestines and your organs, coupled with high muscle fat infiltration, that's sort of associated with having a metabolic disease. And then if you couple that with either high or low liver fat, we saw in that same research that if you have high amounts of liver fat, you're more likely to have type 2 diabetes. But if you have actually high visceral fat and high muscle fat with low liver fat, that was more coupled to having coronary heart disease. So it's interesting to start to look into the, the skewness and how these different ectopic fat compartments interact together to really see how various metabolic comorbidities come into play into the fatty liver disease uh, spectrum. And that sort of the more earlier stages of the disease. Uh, now going into the sarcopenic uh, area. So when you come towards the end stages of the disease, the body, the livers can't really uh, successfully man- maintain a working metabolism in your body. So you actually starve ever so little when you sleep in between the meals, which then makes the muscle take a hit that they themselves need to uh, produce energy by breaking down. So 
in that aspect, you have a slow, slow uh, decrease in muscle mass, coupled with also with the increased muscle fat infiltration due to the disease. You have two things affecting the muscle, slower muscles and, and increased muscle fat. And actually, if you look into those with end-stage liver disease, that is those who have come to cirrhosis and would then need potentially a liver transplant, depending on the definition, but almost up to 70% of those have some stage of sarcopenia. So it's highly prevalent uh, when it comes to those end stages uh, that you have a severely uh, depleted or, or worse uh, muscle composition. So what is the, the definition of sarcopenia? Is it decreased muscle mass uh, below a certain criteria? So there are a few different uh, definitions there. There's no, not really a strong consensus it's exactly how to define it, by, but most would say that it's a combination of loss of muscle mass and function, and then you can measure that by various ways. So uh, I think that's everyone would agree that it's a combination of uh, that muscle mass loss and functional depletion. Um, okay, yeah. And uh, before we leave uh, the liver and get into the muscles, I just want to interject one last thing. There's, uh, and we'll put this in the show notes, there's a great, uh, some interesting work done by uh, Robert Lustig, uh, looking at liver metabolizing alcohol versus liver metabolizing uh, fructose. And it has many of the same overlapping pathways and many of the same damages as, as a result as resulting in fatty liver with both of them. And uh, he's, he's quoted as saying that uh, fructose is like uh, consuming fructose is like consuming alcohol. As far as the liver is concerned, it's just, it's like alcohol without the buzz sort of, or without the intracranial effects necessarily. Although uh, with young children, I think we both know that uh, consuming fructose can have a buzz too, as far as the sugar rush with them as well. <laughs> but let's look, let's look at uh, at um, sarcopenia and body composition. Um, uh, what are some of the approaches uh, before we get into the the magnetic resonance imaging, what are the current approach, what are the alternative approaches for body composition? What are some of their limitations? So there are a few different way, ways of assessing body composition, but it also depends on what you want to measure and what level of uh, detail you need that. Uh, so there is, uh, of course, magnetic resonance imaging that we'll uh, touch upon later, but you also have something called DEXA, which is, uh, a uh, extension of a, a modality that's actually used to measure bone density, but can also to some extent assess the amount of uh, lean tissue uh, in your body. So uh, you can see that. Um, the limitation there is you can't really differentiate, can't really dig, on, dig into seeing if there's fat infiltration in the muscles or see which compartment uh, you have fat in, because you just see straight through a body. So everything is sort of packed together there. Uh, then you can also use CT, uh, so CAT scan. Typically don't do whole body scans due to the radiation, but you can do like single slices and uh, can pretty much do similar quantification as you can use with MRI. Uh, but with MRI, you can do a whole body instead. Um, other way about body composition, I guess, is also bioimpedance scales where you stand on a weight and then you have an 
electric electric current going through your body at different phases, and then you uh, measure uh, how the uh, signal is affected by traveling through the body. And then based on that data, you then look go into a lookup table and see uh, how the body likely is uh, composed based on that. So uh, on a general level, uh, you can have some errors there. The, issue, the problem there is that it's affected by, if you have, for instance, ascites or edema, which have in towards end stages of diseases and a bunch of other things. And also since it's a, uh, you estimate body composition based on that signal. So it's not a direct measurement. So, but it all depends on what level of detail you need uh, for your application in the end. Uh, yeah, so the so a scale basically that we've all used would just tell us our weight and then we might, you know, compare our height with it and get some sort of index there, but it's very crude um, and it doesn't localize at all. Next, we'd have DEXA or bioimpedance type measurements, which could give us a sense of um, fat and and a sense of the body compositions, but it's not localized into three-dimensional space and the quantification is really limited. So the highest level then we have where we want 3D anatomy and it actually can measure muscle volume and fat volume and differentiate between body fat and visceral fat, subcutaneous fat and visceral fat. That would be an imaging test. And we Really, the only two imaging tests available are CT, computer tomography, and that, as you said, of course, uses radiation. So we don't want to do that for a test that we're going to apply many times or even that we expose the whole body to necessarily, especially when something like magnetic resonance imaging is available that can basically do everything that CT can as far as body composition, and there's no no radiation penalty at all with magnetic resonance. You can get it done really pretty much as often as you want. And, and that's the approach you've taken, right? With, um, with the company you're working with, uh, with magnetic resonance imaging for body composition. So, so how does that work? And, and what are the, what are the advantages you've found? So yeah, it's a, also a good, interesting way getting multiple MRI scans. When you do your PhD as an MR physicist, you typically go into the scanner all over the time uh, <laughs> for your colleagues. So I guess all who has a PhD in MR physics has spent days in a scanner. And I haven't seen any publication that no one has suffered from that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very, very safe uh, modality indeed. Uh, <clears throat> so what uh, we do, at the company, so it's actually a spin-off company from research. So uh, a bunch of researchers at the University of Linköping who started this company uh, almost 10 years ago it was actually inspired by Spurlock's Super Size Me documentary, which came around that time. They did a study and wanted to see if they could quantify uh, the body composition efficiently, because the, in the old days, you pretty much had to go slice by slice and quantify. And they wanted to develop a more automatic way of doing that. So pretty much what you do is have a fairly brief MRI uh, imaging session. It takes about eight minutes uh, going from neck to the knees. And uh, then that's it in terms of what you do at the hospital. And then it's all algorithms then 
doing a quantification uh, based on those images. So uh, uh, just quick reference, we will link to Morgan Spurlock's uh, <laughs> seminal documentary, Super Size Me, where, what was it? He went to a, a fast food restaurant, I think it was McDonald's, for a month and survived uh, barely on uh, on uh, McDonald's only food. And I think I think he saw his metabolic uh, parameters. He, he he had frequent blood tests and all uh, decreased uh, over that time. But we'll we'll link to that as uh, as as well. Um, so is, I just wanted to put that in there and and, and continue then. So yeah, now so actually that that study that was uh, the they did was actually they took like fifteen medical students and gave them similar treatment that's as burlock <laughs> <laughs> but then we did also mri because that back in those days uh, we didn't have that technology so that study then uh, made them develop the technology to do this whole body mri uh, assessment so that was only them focusing on the liver in terms of fat infiltration etc now you mentioned um that to do this body composition with magnetic resonance imaging you scan from the neck down to the knees. Um, why were the maybe tell our audience why those choices were made? Why why wouldn't you scan from the top of the head to the toes? Because you don't have that much fat in your head. Well, you have some fat, but it's mostly around your neurons and your brain, and uh, uh, doesn't not that, not that many things that happen up there. So uh, we wanted to focus on the central. Uh, uh, pieces of the body and uh, it's always like it's um, you have to uh, uh, decide how quickly you want to have it done and how easy that it is to get it moving on other systems and have it sort of being uh, scalable so this was one way you're doing it very very efficiently and rapidly and in a standardized manner uh, and also uh, since you don't have big fatty deposits or muscles in your head, that's because uh, we want. Since we don't want to do it quickly, we can't have very very high resolution. So it's difficult to find these small small muscles in your head uh, doing this rapid acquisition that takes just eight minutes. Of course, you can use the same technology going into small muscles, which we typically do in like neuromuscular disorders. But that that's a whole different uh, type of sequence, which takes much longer time, and uh, it's more for a specialists like clinical trials, et cetera. Yeah, so the, the key areas are really would be the abdomen for your visceral fat and subcutaneous fat, and of course, of course, the key structure, the liver. Uh, and then by extending down to your thighs, you get large muscle masses. And presumably, you know, what hap what's happening in your thighs is happening in your calves. So it's not really necessary to do the calves and, and the brain. Like you say, it doesn't add anything. So you're, you're really hitting the the um, high impact areas uh, with this with this study and what what have you found what are some of the results you, you found with this technology so uh, uh, as I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier we could see that when we look into the sort of the skewness of body composition if you will so looking into how these different compartments uh, are against each other we could see that if you have high amounts of visceral fat with high amounts of muscle fat, that was linked to having metabolic disease. And in the same research, we also saw that 
if you have either high or low liver fat, you have more likely type 2 diabetes or coronary heart disease. So that was published back in 2018, 2019. It's actually picked up by National Geographic, who made a special edition in 2019 on the future of medicine, where they uh, uh, worked further on that case. And actually, they uh, coined the frame, it's not the fat, it's where it's at, which is uh, quite a good one just to describe that. Because you actually have the same BMI that is shown in that research. You have the same BMI, but different risks for metabolic comorbidities pending your skewness in your body composition or your ectopic fat compartments. Yeah, that's a that's a key point that that bears repeating, I think. Yeah, for a, a given weight, depending on how the fat is distributed into various body compartments, which is what the, the body composition MRI can show, for a given, for the same weight, you can have two people and one is very healthy metabolically and one is very unhealthy metabolically, and you wouldn't be able to tell from looking at them or from their 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 weight as measured by a bathroom scale. And along the same lines, I think it's worth repeating too that um, metabolic health and all of these these problems with the liver and and wellness, it's not just a problem of patients with obesity. In other words, um, in, in fact, as we've talked about on other episodes, you can have people who are clinically obese, but they're metabolically healthy. And, and you can have people who are thin, but are very metabolically unhealthy with all the risk factors and all the increased incidence of diseases and life expectancy associated with it. So it's not enough, unfortunately, just to say, well, I don't have a problem with my weight. I don't have a problem with metabolic disease. And, and of course, in the, in the, the, the paper a few years ago that everyone quotes, uh, you know, over 80% of Americans uh, have at least have metabolic diseases defined by at least one of the five criteria for metabolic syndrome. So this is truly a pandemic. Uh, but this body composition analysis will allow us to zero in on uh, which patients have metabolic abnormalities there. Uh, how long does the scan take? What is the experience for a patient when they come in for one of these studies? So it depends if you're appending this to an already prescribed MRI scan. For other reasons, then it only adds about six to eight minutes, roughly. But if you're doing the scan only for this analysis, then you have to add also the time of getting into the to the scanner <laughs> in and out. So, but you could easily do it if within twenty or thirty minutes if you're doing only an examination for this. Uh, having someone going in, into the scanner room, going into the scanner, have the images, and then go out. So it's uh, very efficient, and there's no contrast enhancement or any things you have to put on the body it's just into the scanner and take the images and then you're done so it's very very quick in that aspect so it's scanned with the body coil then pretty much and correct and so it also, just uses the built-in and also as you said no contrast injections for, so no none of those intravenous uh injections that sometimes we add for magnetic resonance uh scans but in this case uh not uh not doing that at all and is um, where is the scan available currently? Um, 
we have a, a international audience to this program. So um, I, what countries is it available in now and how do people would go about requesting one of these scans? So currently we, our scan is actually supported by at least 80% of the MRI scanners available from the ma major manufacturers. So it's a very, very good footprint and dust aspect. Uh, in terms of the medical device uh, for health and wellness, we have uh, one medical device uh, available in the European Union with the CE mark. And now we're working on an updated one, uh, which we expect to get clearance in the US uh, by the first quarter of next year. The same goes for EU getting this new device uh, cleared. We actually just got it uh, the clearance from Canada uh, for that same device. So uh, things are moving uh, to get this available to people. So far, we've been involved quite heavily in major multicenter clinical trials uh, with the same technology, which to now bring into to the health and wellness uh, area. Yes, we're hoping to um, have one of these available in the Los Angeles area where I'm based in, in Q1 uh, 2022. What about the clinical trials? What are some of the some of the clinical questions that you're finding this technology technology useful to uh, address? So, in some uh, scenarios, uh, they have been used to pretty much try to see. So, uh, do we have any unforeseen effects somewhere in your body? Uh, can we look into that, or can we see any other uh, good impact? Uh, one of the very, very good examples is in our neuromuscular disorder uh, studies that we've done that recently came out uh, with Falcon Therapeutics uh, for one of those rare diseases. And we were showing very, very good results with our technology. So it's uh, you can apply it to a bunch of different diseases and different aspects of the disease since it ultimately it, it describes the... Uh, manifestation of the disease on your body. So uh, depends on the mode of action of the treatment and which questions you want to answer. So it's, uh, it can be used to do quite a lot, which also makes it kind of hard when you're just <laughs> talking about it because so it's like a blue ocean thing. Yeah, so so many applications. Well, for, for our audience uh, interested in health, longevity, and in particular, the lifestyle choices that we can make to influence those things, um, this could be a very powerful technology. And anytime we evaluate a, a new test or a tool to apply in this area, the first question we always ask is, um, can the, the lifestyle changes that we make, uh, choices that we make and the changes that result be seen by this test? And I would say, you know, of, of course, uh, people have, um, people routinely change their, their body fat, their overall weight, but also their body composition and arrangement of fat, decreasing visceral fat, and versus subcutaneous fat can be can be done with a number of the interventions that uh, our audience has been looking at. Have you have you seen that as well? Yeah, we see uh, changes in a number of different compartments. Often, you can see changes in, for instance, in liver fat because it's a hot topic in since everyone's trying to really solve the fatty liver disease issue. Uh, but since that's coupled then with 
the entire metabolism you see also changes in other compartments such as the the uh, visceral fat uh, compartment and uh, since we can do it to very very high precision accuracy you can find very very small changes uh, which are actual changes that you can measure over time yeah it's it's been a, a revolution uh, to me uh, to my understanding since I've gotten involved with uh, lifestyle choices and into just how much of a dramatic impact simple lifestyle choices like diet or exercise can have on our entire body i i mean not only um liver fat and people can can lower their liver fat and reduce their fatty liver disease or or lose weight or change their body composition from a metabolically unhealthy form to a metabolically healthy form just by just by lifestyle things certain avoiding certain foods and and all and 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 even um brain volumes i i was blown away to see hippocampal volumes in the brain on mri when it's lost as a biomarker for alzheimer's disease can be increased over a period of months and it can be seen dramatically on the imaging so it's it's it, it's amazing the effects that the lifestyle can have on these quantitative measurements but it's also on the other side of the coin it's very powerful having a technique like body composition where you can quantify something apply the lifestyle and then a few months later retest it it's a very strong motivational factor for the patients when they can see their liver getting healthier or their body, their visceral fat decreasing or their hippocampus uh, growing back and increasing in their brain back to a normal size. It's, it's really very, very remarkable. Um, the, the, so if they, if patients want this for wellness, they can uh, request it themselves uh, through, through their local imaging center and get in touch with those. And then obviously if it's, if it's done for a medical indication, then their, their healthcare provider, their physician would uh, request it or order it from again, the hospital or local imaging center. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh Currently, it will probably be out of pocket uh, for the the uh, the patient or the uh, the person who is interested in seeing that uh, at this point in time. But uh, there will be uh, other options available at a later stage. What are you familiar with the price range? Just the ballpark on? Uh, and I know I'm sure it varies greatly uh, around the world, but. Um, uh, no, I'm uh, mostly focusing on the the science things uh, okay. and all of that. So I'm uh, I'm not sure exactly what the uh, the end uh, customer price is. Uh, to be honest, we'll try and get some numbers if we can and put them in the show notes to update that. Um, so, with your expertise in body fat composition and liver fat and NAFLD and MRI, how has this knowledge informed your personal choices about lifestyle in other words uh knowing what you know uh what do you what do you do for exercise or diet or any particular choices there or sleep or anything like that so i actually <clears throat> did a, a analysis with this technology uh, almost a year ago slightly more and uh found actually I uh, had very, very high levels of visceral fat, which I did not expect. So 
that did not really match what you would see looking into the other tr traditional measures like weight circumference, weight or whatnot. So I actually had very, very high levels of visceral fat, uh, which made me quite startled. And then starting looking to the other parameters saw that, yeah, but my muscle fat was very, very low. So it was good. Liver fat, really, really low. So that was fine. High levels of muscle volume, which I expected since I do exercise quite a lot. So, but the visceral adipose tissue was actually quite high. And um, so that really triggered me into doing some changes, but it, just as trying to get, see, well, seeing that you need a holistic view on the body composition, also you need a holistic view on your life composition, if you will, to really get a working effect. So, uh, why why is the visceral fat so dangerous as well, compared to it, subcutaneous it, fat? So you can hardly find any links for subcutaneous fat for disease other than if you lose quite a lot of subcutaneous fat, then you're likely cachexic and are about to have a very, very severe uh, end stage event. But visceral fat is coupled with quite a lot of uh, risk for developing disease. But as I looked then into our database, with individuals with having the same combination with high visceral fat, but low muscle fat and low liver fat, the propensity for having diabetes coronary heart disease was just a few percent. So uh, that really made me feel, okay, got it. This is nothing to be alarmed by now, but I better uh, get that value down before anything happens. So that's the beauty here. You can really start to see things that you can actually attack before they go become a actual disease. So uh, nine months later, I was down 10 kilos and I've maintained that since uh, by just not that drastic changes, actually. Uh, we've skipped all of the highly processed foods and all of those sugaries because those are big uh, no-nos. And then uh, also just going, so every morning is always oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, whole grain and sourdough breads and going back to the old uh, cultural wheat varieties like hammer and spelt. So, and then portion control, smaller plates, eat less food and uh, small changes like that that can still uh, be sort of sustainable changes. So you can't, you can, uh, cause I figure it's kind of hard to do big drastic changes because uh, that will be hard to maintain in the long run. So we were starting just doing small changes that we can maintain and then sort of have a snowball, snowball effect, adding more and more stuff because it, it was not a critical event, but we wanted to have a working solution to get it down. Yeah, that's that's been very powerful with, with people. Rather than going on a, quote, diet that you know people will stay on for a matter of days or weeks and then end the diet, rather than that, make a gradual change that's that we don't really think of as a diet, but just it's the way we eat, whatever we eat. And that becomes the normal for us. And that is sustainable by definition in the long term. So that's, that, that's great. Any, uh, do you, do you do any intermittent fasting uh, with that? I actually tried that uh, prior to doing all of that. So I actually tried it during my PhD years uh, for a few months. Uh, but I, during those two days of calorie restriction, I really couldn't be sharp mentally. So it had too much of an impairment on my uh, as other aspects of life. So I, I did not uh, 
continue that. But it was an interesting experience to try out. So, but for me, it was challenging. But uh, so, seeing for others, it's been working. So, I, this is also everyone is slightly different. So, different things work for different people. Yeah, it shows the importance of whether it's diet or supplements or fasting. These lifestyle choices all have to be personalized uh, because the effects are so different. Any any supplements or devices uh, that you use uh, to follow your health? Well, I actually use the traditional scale. So I have almost 10 years worth of data uh, to track back and see uh, the impact of your big holiday events <laughs> with big binge eating and then the, uh, all these other but it also goes to show i mean looking at the scales i would sort of yeah slightly above where it should be but probably not that bad but then when you did that bcp scan getting you seeing the exact values of the visceral fat is like whoa so i still now have a cut point that i don't want to move over in terms of weight uh but uh, again, it, it shows that you need more, more data there. But other than that, uh, of course, as I have a cell phone, smartphone, you have a step counter built into that one, which <laughs> I try to look at now and again. And really, if there's too much of a hard, intense work period, so I've not moved enough to really step up. And uh, But the good thing is I have a two-year-old son who really loves biking. So... Once or twice a day, he's up on the back of my bike and we go for a ride for uh, half an hour or 40 minutes. It's a good solid exercise. And also having a small son, which is quite active, it's a good exercise by itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mikael, tell us, uh, how can people follow the work you're doing? Um, is there a website they should go to or social media? Yeah, so actually, there's I have a few colleagues who also do uh, this type of work with these measurements. So I think that our the company's web uh, LinkedIn page, our medical LinkedIn LinkedIn page, really highlights all of our research that we do. And of course, I on my personal uh, LinkedIn page also uh, highlight the research I'm directly involved in. But uh, so following both, you get uh, both specifically to me, and then all the other things that my colleagues uh, work on. So we're, we're a team of clinical scientists at Amra that are all involved in different aspects of trying to really dig into how body composition really relates to disease and outcomes. Great. Well, and we'll link to all those in the show notes as well. Well, thank you so much, Mikkel, for spending this, this hour with us and sharing the fascinating work that you're doing. Thank you. This and look forward to uh, let's stay in touch and I uh, want to hear all about all the great things in the future that we have to look forward to as well. Looking forward to it. Note, this is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking of it because of something you have seen here. If you find this to be of value of you, please hit that like button and subscribe to support the work we do on this channel. Also, we take your suggestions and advice very seriously. Please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching and we we'll hope to see you next time!